Thanks for listening to the Sugar Hill Church Podcast. To hear more sermons and to find out more about our church, please visit sugarhillchurch.com. We're continuing our series today and actually finishing our series today on risk. And uh, we'll, if you have your Bibles, we'll be in the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 1. And um, I don't know of a greater risk than to actually choose to live an on-mission or missional lifestyle for God. In, in today's world, to actually live openly and uh, wildly or sacrificially as a follower of Jesus is pretty risky. As a matter of fact, I, I'd be willing to say many, if not most of us, choose not to. I mean, it's, just, it's, it's fascinating to watch how all that works. And in 1 Corinthians, we, we get this sense that it is, it's riskier than we might even recognize. I really believe that the Bible teaches from Genesis to Maps that in there that the local church, churches like ours, are the hope for the world. Now, that is, that is a scary thing because I really believe the local church, the way Jesus designed it and built it to be, is the hope of the world how we act and how we react in the world is a big deal. But I'm, but I'm relatively sure that for the most part, churches across America, and at times this one, we don't act and react the way the church Jesus designed it to be. I mean, we kind of layer rules on top of his, or we, we get a picture in our own orthodoxy of how things are supposed to be, and then before long it becomes kind of the, you know, the third Baptist church of my opinion or the second Baptist church of my preference. And then we start excluding people from the gospel, or we start excluding people from the church because they don't look like us, talk like us, walk like us. And then before long, we become the fourth Baptist church of the country club. And we stop living this missional lifestyle. Because, you see, I think what happens is, and, and I believe we're going to prove this today, that the reason that the church is the hope of the world is not because of who we are, but because of whose we are. And that's a big difference. I mean, if the world, if we're, if we're counting on Chuck to be able to solve the problems of this world, we are in deep, deep trouble. Okay, let me take that a little more personally. If we're counting on you to be the hope of the world, how hopeful should the world be? Because most of us, our lives are a disaster. The laundry list of stuff we've got to do is pretty significant, right? But it all depends on our view of God. Now, now watch this. I want you to get in your head and think of two things. Number one, right now, what is your greatest challenge in your life? Whatever that may be, right? What, what's your greatest challenge? For some of you, it's a job. For some of you, it's income. For some of you, it's your marriage. For some of you, it's health. For some, whatever your greatest challenge. You got it? Okay, on the other side, what's your greatest goal, dream, or desire? Think about it. What is it you really want to achieve, to, to, to attain? What do you want to accomplish? All right, look at those two. You got them in your head? Okay, now watch this. Your view of God will determine the outcome of both of those. Because, you see, you will see God in one of two ways. He is either too small to overcome that challenge or accomplish that goal, or he's so big I can't help but achieve and succeed his way. 
So if he's the hope of the world, then the goal is that we better act and be more like him. So in preparation for this week, I found a couple of things that I thought might be interesting. You say, well, what is the power of the gospel and what is the message of the gospel? Because I'm, I think we hear that word and we think, well, that's the guy who knocks on the door on Tuesday nights and says, hey, do you know for sure if you were to die, you go to heaven? That's got to be the gospel, right? Well, what, what if the gospel sounds more like this? God loves you in spite of all the dumb stuff we've done. He loves us. You can't do anything to make him love you more. You can't do anything to make him love you less. He loves us. Okay? Now watch this. What if God were to say, I love you so much, I'm going to send part of me, my own son, and he's going to pay the price that you ought to pay because he didn't do anything wrong you did. But he's going to take the punishment for all your junk and he's going to die for you and they're going to bury him in a borrowed tomb and three days later, just like he said he would, he's going to raise from the dead and he's going to then ascend to heaven and sit by God and everybody who would trust in him would have life more abundantly today and eternally forever. You look at that and you say, well, what is that? That is the gospel. Jesus crucified, risen, and the hope of glory. Are you with me? So if that's the gospel, what does the gospel do? The gospel is the only message that can turn a terrorist into a missionary. You say, well, well tell me more about that. Well, the apostle Paul. Before Paul was Paul, he was Saul. You know what Saul ran around doing? Killing people who were Christians. You know what he would be today? He'd be a hate crime terrorist. We'd be flashing him across Fox News and OAN and CNN and MSNBC, and we'd have pictures of him in the post office, and he'd be a hate crime terrorist. And along the road, what happened? He met Jesus, and his life turned him from a terrorist to a missionary. You say, well, I need a little bit more than that. Okay, what about a hedonistic sinner into a great theologian? St. Augustine. I mean, we, 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 still use the, we still use those teachings over and over and over again. What about a, a reluctant politician into a transformational reformer who changed the world of millions of slaves and William Wilberforce? You say, well, check out, how about something more recent? Okay, how about a rock star, a pop singer from U2, Bono, who became a global philanthropist because Jesus came into his life? Or what, what about one of the world's most famous Christian scientists, Dr. Francis Collins, who once was an atheist and in trying to prove atheism became a follower of Jesus because of the power of the gospel? So I look at all that and I think to myself, boy, you know, we Americans, we sure have changed the definition of the gospel somehow. I mean, listen to a couple of past presidents. John F. Kennedy claimed, and this is his quote, our problems are man-made, therefore they may be solved by man. Hmm. President Bill Clinton told the nation, I'll tell you one thing. No, that's, uh, <laughs> I may have inhaled, but I'm not going to say it. <laughs> Edit that out. <laughs> Bill Clinton said, and I'll quote, there's nothing wrong with America that cannot be cured by what's right with America. Now listen, I appreciate the patriotism. I appreciate the rah-rah that goes with the sentiment there. And no, I'm not picking on Democrats. I don't care if you ride on the back of a donkey or a Republican. My point is, I respectfully disagree with both of these men. Matter of fact, I'd say Jesus is the only answer to mankind's great problems. The only hope for a world in turmoil today. He alone can save any soul, heal any heart, and reconcile any enemy. I mean, what, what does the Middle East need today? Well, listen, don't get me wrong. Listen, I, I'm a Zionist. I'm on the side of Israel. I believe they have a right to defend themselves, and I believe America ought to stand with them. All right? But listen to me. Hope in the Middle East, hope, thank you for that, hope in the Middle East 
is in Jesus. Hope for those children on the south of our border is in Jesus. Hope for those families in that flight shot down last week is in Jesus. The hope for a world in turmoil is that the church would go act like the church and act and react more like Christ. That's the hope. I mean, from his crucifixion to to this present moment, Jesus has been working to draw all people to himself. The real question is this, how will you join him today? Therein lies the question. Jesus saved us to send us. He didn't save us to sit us. I mean, the fact of the matter is, I'm grateful for all the things that we do around this church. I'm, I'm grateful for all those backpacks. I'm grateful for all the people we help. I'm grateful for the team that just got from, back from Haiti and Badayan. I heard amazing stories of what happened in Haiti. I'm grateful for all the things that happen in the life of our church. But at the end of the day, listen to me, the total number of people from this church that are involved in all those things is relatively minimal. He didn't save you to come in here and sit and listen to me talk and Hector sing. He saved to send you out there to go make a difference to go find, to go to Haiti, to go pack backpacks, to go next door and meet your neighbor, to go help street grace. He called us and saved us to send us. The only way the, church, the world is going to get different isn't sitting in this room. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm grateful for you. But, but that's, not, that's not the only thing he called us to do. He saved us to send us. Maybe we ought to take a minute and define the missional life. And, and why it's so risky. To live the missional life is to see your world in a larger context than you. To see this world bigger than the larger context of just this church. To see the need for that, for, that, for that same world to be loved on and cared on by you through the power of Christ. To actually believe that Jesus, crucified, risen in the hope of glory, is your story to leave a measurable change on this planet while you're here. That would be the risk of living missionally. And you know what the risk of that is? That somebody's going to find you out. That you're, you're going to go to a high school reunion for that you're now 30 years out of, and somebody's going to say, hey, man, I didn't know you were a Christian. Because there's nothing in our walk that shows it. There's nothing in our story that shows it. We're, we're just blowing through life, man. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 here's what Paul wrote, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. No conditions for everyone. So why did Paul assure them, why does Paul assure us of not being ashamed of the gospel? I mean, he he never clearly says so, but we can assume from the rest of Romans and from all of Paul's other writings, including what we're going to read today, Compared to all other systems and philosophies of his day and ours, nothing compares to the gospel. Now, always keep in mind, and I say this all the time, we can understand the context of the Bible today best when we understand the context of who it was written to then. Are you with me? I mean, if you're with me on that nod, you got it? So if I understand the context of who he's writing to then, I can now better understand the context of who, of who he's writing to now. So the context is this. Paul is writing a letter to the church at Corinth. He's speaking to two people, all the known world in that space, Greek, Jew. And the way he defines this with great simplicity, just like we do, is this. Greek, relatively affluent, educated, and worldly. Jewish, poor, looking for a sign, waiting on the Messiah. You with me? But that's who he's speaking to. And he's writing to these people and basically putting everybody in those two categories, painting with a big, broad brush, 
and saying, this is kind of who I'm talking about. So when he's writing in 1 Corinthians in chapter 1, he's talking to all the known world, not just these people. Because some of us read it today and say, well, I'm not Greek and I'm not a Jew. doesn't apply to me. But in the context, what he's saying is, I'm speaking to everybody, whether it's easy for you to be religious or not. Are you with me? Whether it's easy to accept that a Messiah may have come or not. So in other words, he's speaking to the intellectual who says, I just can't wrap my head around it. And he's speaking to the other person who says, I just need to see a wonder and a sign. He's talking to everybody. And so what we see here in 1 Corinthians 1 is Paul writes about the nature of the gospel. He wanted the church to be clear about what God had entrusted them to do. So look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning of verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. For it is written in verse 19, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know him, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to those who believe. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. That explains a lot right there, doesn't it? But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that, as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. What you find there in verses 18 through 31, we see the nature of the gospel. We see three cool things. The gospel is always polarizing. The gospel is always purposeful. The gospel is always personal. It's always personal. It's always about a person. I mean, missional living is polarizing. And I find this interesting, that it's always polarizing. Now you say, well, Chuck, I, I don't like that whole polarizing thing. I mean, I, just, I, I don't want to be at odds with people. I want people to be at peace. But watch this. The, the reason the gospel is polarizing is this. Every time I see the gospel for what it is, I recognize how sinful I am and how perfect God is. I realize my desperate need for him because I realize how messed up I am. I mean, do you see how polarizing that is? So when we, when we see God in his holiness, it's like crud. I, I can't ever be in his presence. I can't go talk to him. But in his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, he sent Jesus so we could have a relationship with him, and we can talk to him. And so my talks to God sound a lot like this. God, today I got no energy. I am tired, I am weary, and I am exhausted. God, today, I just need you to hit me up with a little something more than five-hour energy. I need a little Holy Spirit action to kick in and do a little something-something. And you say, well, d that does not sound respectful, Chuck. Well, if you want to break out the King James voice, knock yourself out. 
you know, I, I mean, God already knows I don't talk like that. I mean, I don't call my buddy Rusty and say, how art thou? <laughs> I mean, Rusty would hang up on me, right? I mean, we, we recognize the polarizing power of the gospel. The gospel sounded glorious to those that embraced it. You see that in verses 24 and 25. And in it, they saw God's power and learned God's wisdom. But to many, it seemed foolish. I mean, to the Greek, what he's saying is, man, I just, I can't wrap my head around that. I just, I can't understand it intellectually. It makes no sense. Why would somebody love me when I'm messed up and die for me and shed his blood for me and raise from the dead? I, I, I can't wrap my head around that. You know what? I can't either. Now, on the other side, he's, he's speaking that he calls this group the Jews. He says, they're looking for signs and wonders. They're looking for a Messiah. They can't understand why would a Messiah die and then raise from the dead? I mean, why didn't he come with trumpets and, and a big throne and sit on the throne and be the king of the world? And he's saying, man, yet it is. It's confounding, isn't it? And you know what's even more confounding about why it's polarizing is this. There's nothing we do that makes God love us more or less. I mean, you can't be spiritual enough to let, make God love you more than the dude next to you. And I get it, some of you are just like super religious, churchy people. I get it, good for you. We're going to give you a medal, dude. That's good. We need you, all right? But listen to me. That doesn't make you any better than the cat who showed up for the first time today in 28 years. Because you came to the cross and it was level. If you drove a BMW 7 Series $80,000 car and parked out there and walked in, the guy who came to the foot of the cross driving an 83 Chevrolet C10 with bald tires, that same dude, when he gets to the foot of the cross, is at even ground with you. And you know what Jesus said? Come on, bring all your junk. I've got you. I don't care how polarizing he is because the missional life isn't just polarizing, it's purposeful. I mean, the question I would ask you is this. How do you respond when somebody rejects the gospel? I mean, does it bug you? Does it, does it phase you at all? I mean, missional living is purposeful. A lot of the Corinthians were unimpressive by the world's standards. I mean, you see that in verse 26. Of course, it didn't include all of them since Paul said not many. I mean, indicating perhaps that some were powerful, some were influential. Paul didn't intend to belittle those guys, but to magnify the purposes of God in the gospel. God chose the foolish and despised things in the world. He didn't save those who deserve salvation. On the contrary, he saved those who the world hated and rejected. Aren't you glad? I mean, he picked a bunch of weirdos. I mean, okay, do this for me. Just, I, I know we do this every now and then, and all of you, some of you are just so cool you won't do it, all right? But just look around at the people around you. Go ahead. You have permission. Just look around. I mean, just think about it. God picked them you know what some of you are thinking he took a coffee break on that one right and at the foot of the cross he said no, that's my boy that's my girl and there was a purpose there was a rhyme and a reason for, for, for him to come the gospel subverted the system that we know i mean you think about it the gospel reverses our world standards I mean, this is what's so great about it. The world says we have to earn worth and value through performance, wealth, and success. I mean, that's, that's the standard, right? In our world, performance always precedes outcome. Performance always precedes outcome. You with me? And if, you, if, you're, if you're in the business world, you're in, you're in whatever it is, real estate, insurance, media, I don't care what you're in, performance always 
precedes outcome. Our standards require that we have to work and we have to achieve before the final outcomes of our life are declared. Now, you say, well, that's exactly right, Chuck. That's the American way. Okay, you ready? This is deep. Theologically, that's slavery. Theologically, that, that, that's slavery. We're, we're captivated and captive to a standard to measure our success against the guy sitting next to you across the hall from you in the desk across from you or drives the car you want. We're captivated by it. We're locked up in jail to that system. In the gospel, Jesus comes along and subverts that system and declares a person worthy and approved before God despite their performance. God's purpose in the gospel, according to verse 29, is that no human might boast in the presence of God. You know why? Because there's only one standard we're to measure against his for us, not each other. So you think about it and you say, wait a minute, well, Chuck, the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Jesus takes all of our buried, messed up lives and he says, I'm going to love you. I'm going to accept you. I'm going to forgive you no matter what. Maybe we ought to stop right here and need and, and recognize the need that, the, that grace extended to us at the level ground at the foot of the cross is a reminder that none of us deserve Jesus. None of us deserve forgiveness. None of us de deserve salvation. You find yourself every now feeling entitled to the grace of God. You ever get there? Well, I'll tell you one thing. I, I've worked down there in that children's department for two years. Somebody needs to give me a thank you. Been there? Let me tell you one thing. I've gone on enough youth trips. They have driven me bat crazy for four years. I have earned... You been there? Maybe we'll stop in this and recognize missional living will be polarizing. It'll be purposeful. But missional living is always about a person found in a relationship with Jesus. The gospel of Jesus doesn't point to a teaching or a philosophy, but to a person. I mean, what Paul wants us to get in totality in verse 30 might be highly debated, but in verse 31, it clarifies this point where he says, therefore, as it's written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You know what he's really saying? There is nothing good that I offer you except the presence of Jesus. And let me just stop and say, there is nothing you offer this world good but the presence of Jesus at work and alive in your life. I mean, you think about it. Paul says that all we need for salvation is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. You say, well, Chuck, you know what? I'm going to tell you, you know, I, I, I think it's more than that, not according to this. Well, there's got to be more to it, not according to this. Well, you know what, Chuck? I'll tell you what, there, there's some rules if we're going to do church right, not according to this. According to this, Jesus is enough then, he's, he's enough today, and he'll be enough tomorrow, and he'll be enough in heaven. And anything you layer on top of that is adding something to the Bible that was never intended to be there. He is either enough or he is not. And as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And you see, you look at that church and you say, wait a minute. Missional living is about a person. You see, a person is wise, righteous, sanctified, and redeemed only through a relationship that's personal, a personal relationship with Jesus. That's what Paul is writing about. And this makes being a follower of Jesus, a Christian, different from every other religion. All other religious figures in history merely pointed to truth, essentially saying, do this and it'll be better. If you do this, it'll be why. But Jesus comes along and says, wait a minute, I I'm not going to teach you about truth. Jesus comes along and says, I am the way, I am the what? Truth and the life. 
I'm going to give you a triple dip. You don't, you don't have to. I'm going to give you a whole deal. I mean, there's literally thousands of religions in the world. Some of you come from them, right? Thousands of religions in the world. Which one can we trust? I mean, you know, you know the number one question I get around here? Number one question I get from Facebook or, or Twitter or, or email or something, posts, anything, you, however you communicate with me. Number one thing is, okay, I've watched so-and-so, I read so-and-so, can I trust what they have to say? Okay, let, let, me, let, me, let me just... I, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not the brightest bulb in the chandelier, and I'm certainly not the sharpest knife in the drawer. But I can get this down to a point that's so simplistic, we all get this theological issue. Okay, you ready? There are only two religions in the world. By the way, this is tweetable. There's only two religions in the world. You ready? Now, let me, let me describe them for you. One, which tells you that salvation comes as a reward for what you've done. One is, is a reward for what you can do, how good you are, how hard you work, how well you act, how nice you are, all that other junk. That's, that's one. And that's everything but the one which tells you salvation comes by what somebody else has done and is doing for you. And that's Christianity through a relationship with Jesus Christ. So on the one hand, every religion is about how hard you can work and what you can do. And then there's Jesus. I look at that and I think, if it's up to me, I have royally blown it. If it's up to Jesus, I can meet him at the foot of the cross. How about you? You say, well, is it, Chuck, it cannot be that simple. According to Jesus, it is. I didn't make this up, but that's what he said. So, so where do you look for salvation? Well, you know, my family, good works, success, a political party, uh, self-discovery, mm, financial gain, fame. Maybe, maybe, maybe another personal best. I mean, the, the gospel of Jesus offers you a person in Jesus Christ who accomplished all you need for salvation, all you need to be able to breathe and live in peace. Today's teaching ought to shed a little light on why Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because, you see, he knew it, and he trusted it. And he lived it by faith. So he was filled with love so he could share it. What about you? You say, well, you know what, Chuck? I get it. It's my choice. You get to pick. You get to enjoy all the missional living and bask in the joy of God's blessing. Or you can play it safe and meet on. You, 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 can, you can resist all of the blessing of living this radical lifestyle that I'm actually going to try to act and react like Jesus. Chuck, I, I want to live purposefully. I mean, I want to live in the person of Christ. I want him to sit on the throne of my heart. I don't, I don't dig that whole polarization thing. Can't we just, you, we are the world. I mean, come on, ebony and ivory. I mean, can't we all just get along? Sure. In the power of Jesus through the person of Jesus, through the blessing of Jesus, through salvation in Jesus. You say, well, Chuck, listen, I, I, I got to get a little more practical. I'm going to give you three things. You ready? You jot them down. This is good stuff, right? Number one, choose to live intentionally. This week, decide, I'm actually going to choose to, to act and react more like Jesus. You say, well, I, I don't know how that happened. Go read, the, go read the Gospel of John this week and act more like Jesus. I'm going, to, I'm going to make that intentional choice. I'm going to. I'm going to make that choice. Secondly, I'm going to, I'm going to live patiently. 
some, some of you are all jacked up on Jesus, and it's like, man, I just want everybody else to love Jesus like I do. When you're just in everybody's face, man, it's just like, you know, calm down, dude. Easy. Easy. I have never seen anybody beaten into heaven. Right? I'm not saying don't carry a six-foot Bible and beat the grud out of the guy in the office next to you because he doesn't believe you. Patience. Right? By the way, your job's not to save people. His is. Your job's to live a little more like him and share him. And then finally, how about living normally? Don't go out there and be super weirdo Christian dude. Right? Just be a normal cat that loves Jesus. I mean, I don't, that's not hard, is it? Just be a normal dude. Do dude stuff. Right? Ladies, just be a normal lady and love Jesus. And you know what you'll find when you're intentional and you're patient and you're normal? God will bless that. And what will happen is you will see the gospel at mission, at work, through, and in your life. And that's my prayer for you today. Let's pray. So today I would say to you, some of you in this room, you can't live the missional lifestyle because you've never let the gospel into your heart. You say, well, Chuck, I don't know how to do that. Well, according to the Bible, you call on his name. Well, Chuck, I don't know how to call on his name. Well, it sounds kind of like this. I mean, I don't have a magic prayer for you. It just sounds like this. Jesus, I know I've made a mess of my life. I need you to forgive me. Come live in my life and be the, be the boss of my life. And I accept you're dying for me and raising from the dead for me as payment for what I really I deserve. And I want to make a U-turn of my life. I want to live for you. With every head bowed and with every eye closed, if that's the desire of your heart, with every other head bowed and every eye closed, I want you to lift your head and open your eyes and look at me. Yeah. 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 Man, they're everywhere. People saying, I, I, well, Jesus, I need you. Today, make that choice. Grab hold of the risk of living for him. Let him do something extraordinary in your life. Father, today we're going to trust you because we have faith in you. All that came because we know you more. And that in your love for us, you first loved us. And while we were yet sinners, you came to us and said, come on to the foot of the cross. It's even here. And I pray we choose you this day.